Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I am your solo host today. Britt Hartley, and occasionally uh, Bill and I are going to be producing some solo content, some deep dives into personal or meaningful areas of either my life or Bill's life. And so for me, that's going to be some storytelling. Uh, Some of you know that I was a history teacher before. Uh, I kind of really got into theology and spirituality. And sometimes I just need to get on a podium by myself and tell a good story. And so that's what I'm going to do today. And this story that we're going to be exploring today is one that I found when I was really, really into a deep, dark night of the soul. And so it's something that I've just really been wanting to share with others because I've met other people in that place also as I continue to have conversations with people about life post-religion. So I just finished watching Game of Thrones. And one of the things that I loved, and I won't spoil the ending too bad here, but one of the things that I loved about the end is that when they're trying to decide who is best to lead humanity of all these qualified people, um, they decide on the storyteller. The one who is the most valuable person is the one who holds the most stories. And so he gets to be the king at the end, right? And in fact, in our history, back when we were, you know, tribes living in groups of 20 to 30 people, the most important person in the tribe was often the storyteller. It's the person that you fed first. It's the person that you needed to make sure was okay because if your tribe didn't have a storyteller or some way to put life into a story or to make life interesting or to make sense of life, your tribe would die and have no way to kind of be able to handle the amount of suffering that we suffer as humans. And it's storytelling that really got me into the business of being a history teacher. I wanted to know the best and the worst stories of what humans could do. And stories are really how we learn our internal landscape. So we will choose to live because of a story. We will change our lives because we heard a story. We'll even die for a story. And so even though um, in religion, we often talk about stories that we've taken too literally, right? Because we're superstitious humans, they still are really extraordinarily powerful. And that's why they last so long in our bones. We've been telling stories by the fire for thousands of years. We have these collective stories in our memories, which is why they keep the same stories keep showing up over and over again. So I want to start with this story um, that really saved me in a really tough and dark place in my life when it felt like I was in a black hole and didn't couldn't see a way out. And it's just my offering to this community. And it really comes from a really deep place in my soul. So here we go. This is story time. Now, this story starts off with a little uh, Nietzsche, who's a famous philosopher. 
who was no stranger to the dark night of the soul. And he predicted something really insightful in the late 1800s, back before the two world wars, because Nietzsche died in the year 1900. And what he's doing is he's watching Christianity crumble. He's the philosopher who's famous for saying God is dead. So he's watching Christianity crumble. And what he predicts is that society is gonna go into one of these two directions. He sees people jump into one of these two directions. Either people jump into the next thing that gives them a sense of order. In this case, he predicted totalitarian regimes, political parties, or people will get thrown into nihilism or the belief that nothing matters. And so Nietzsche predicted that after Christianity, there would be a rise in totalitarian regimes or political parties that essentially acted like religions. And he was right. The Nazi party, the Soviet Union, these are religions. These are a kind of religion, but without a God in the case of the Soviet Union. And our political parties today in America can become a kind of religion. Or you jump into nihilism, which is this kind of deep anxiety and deep depression that nothing that you don't know what to do, nothing matters. Um, how can we even do anything in the face of this much suffering? And it's this really depressing place that's actually quite rampant in our young population. We see a lot of um, hopelessness, kids dropping out of high school because they don't even believe that there's gonna be an earth you know, by the end of their lives. And so this is the two options that happen after you lose your foundation. You either jump into something that gives you order or you turn into nihilism where everything crumbles and you're kind of left uh, in kind of a deep de existentially depressive place. And so for Nietzsche, he um, talked a little bit about this third option, which was the, the only option, the only grace we had is that if people could individually become responsible for themselves, think for themselves, do the right thing because they were accountable to themselves. And he wasn't very optimistic about us all doing that, but it's something that Bill and I will try to do week after week as we tr uh, continue to bring in spiritual topics and guests and stories for this kind of abundant life post-religion. But the story that I want to share with you today is about one of these camps, one of these reactions that Nietzsche's talking, talking about that he predicted for our time, which is um, the reaction of nihilism or the belief in nothing. And this is really, really um, spreading with young people. And it's also it also happens particularly with Mormons or other high demand religions. So with nihilism, what happens is when we begin to deconstruct something, it's like a bulldozer. And some people, especially if your religion was a low demand religion, you kind of intuitively know when to stop. But sometimes that deconstruction is so connected to so many other things that by the time you're done bulldozing, all that's left is ashes. There is nothing left. It's the swing from total order to total chaos. And what happens with nihilism is that not only do you lose faith in an institution or a way to order the world, but you lose faith in all institutions or any way to order the world. And so speaking personally now, I spent about two years in this place, um, two really hard years and this kind of dark night of the soul. And 
when I look back on it, what had happened was I had lost faith in God. I had lost my faith community of Mormonism. And I'd lost some of the relationship with my family members, my brother in particular. I was doing this deep meditation work where I realized how little free will I had and how programmed my ego was. I had lost a sense of self a little bit, my identity, even lost to how to make sense of morality without God. And without being able to push off things to the next life, which is the easy trick that religion does, um, I was really weighed down by the concept of suffering. It bothered me so much that most things suffer for most of the time. And for at least 100,000 years, we've been on this earth just mostly suffering and dying painfully. So I had some depression, you know, not, not really caused by not going on enough walks and not getting enough sunlight, but, but really just losing a lack of meaning in my life, right? Uh, so if this, if your life has been unicorns and rainbows, um, this podcast episode is not for you. But if you've ever had a night so dark where you wonder, what is the purpose of all this? How can we continue? Is the human race even worth continuing? Then this story is for you. Um, and this place in philosophy is what we call facing the abyss. And it was much harder for me. I got stuck here for a lot longer than facing death. Facing death, opening that door, facing your own mortality. I went through that. It wasn't too bad. But this place facing the abyss. I got stuck here for a while. Um, and as Nietzsche says, when you stare into the, the abyss long enough, it begins to stare back at you. So at the time, I'm reading Russian philosophers and writers because if anyone understands the weight of human suffering, it's the dang Russians who have just been through so much as a people. Um, and I came across this story that just shocked me to my, to my core. This is the story of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was born in Russia in 1918. He was raised by his widowed mother. And a lot of war. Russia is just this, this poor country, right? And so his mom worked hard to encourage his learning. Eventually, he becomes a math teacher, but he didn't love, he didn't love math like he loved writing. But it saved his life later on because he wasn't uh, sent to the hardest labor camps due to his math education. And in 1945, he's arrested for writing derogatory comments about Stalin in a letter to a friend. So he's sentenced to eight years in the labor camps in Russia. And while he's there, he's, he also develops a tumor and he has cancer. So you have to imagine this. He's in the middle of the Soviet Union where it becomes clear that this, this is a Holocaust. He estimates that 60 to 100 million people die from these labor camps. Um, Ukrainians, you know, just millions die. And he's in prison for a letter. He's separated from his wife. He's sick. He's dying. He has cancer. It's cold and dark. And you're in this work camp where people are dying left and right. Right. So this is kind of like, like a Viktor Frankl Holocaust place where it really just appears that all is lost, that humanity is lost that God is dead and all that is left is the suffering that we inflict on each other. And this was the place he was not just physically, but also in his soul. And he wrote that it felt like he was on this train of destruction and considered whether it was just better to die than be on this train. And so what happens to him or what changes his outlook is he saw around him a few people who lived according to their own moral code and they were shot for it. 
And he saw in these people who lived according to their own moral code, no matter the consequences, he saw this spark of humanity that deserved to be saved. So rather than give up in the depths of human despair and suffering, he's inspired by these people who acted with dignity in the face of death. So he starts writing. He writes a bit when he's in prison. He commits pages to memory. It's this huge volume. He smuggles out papers when he can. And when he's released, he starts writing the book called The Gulag Archipelago. It took about 10 years. It's the seven-part history of the prison camps in the Soviet Union. It, it includes hundreds of testimonies of former prisoners. And he's writing this in secret with the KGB, just watching his every move so that he has various chapters going to different people so no one had the master copy. And in fact, one of his secretaries was tortured to give up a master copy and uh, she didn't know that he had others. So when she gave up the hiding spot, she hanged herself a few days later because she thought that the world wouldn't have this story and that it was her fault. So she eventually, um, she, she hanged herself, which is very tragic. But eventually he publishes this work something he poured his soul into in order to do his part to stop the machine of suffering that was communism in the Soviet Union. And what it does and why it's often called the most influential work of the 20th century is it because it convinces the Western world and the whole world of what's really going on. And it eroded any support left for the Soviet Union. It shined a light on what was going on there. And he did it so beautifully that people reading it would get PTSD just because they felt like they were there. It's this incredibly emotional story. So eventually he gets this manuscript together and he's able to, pub to publish it, gets exiled from the Soviet Union. KGB kind of sponsors this smear campaign against him. Um, and he goes to New York, but he's homesick for his homeland. He gets an honorary degree from Harvard. Um, and this is a little side note, but he gave a commencement speech at Harvard and people thought that he would praise the West compared to the Soviet Union. But he basically told everybody off because, um, yes, they had political freedom, but that there was no spirituality, just television and empty consumerism and a belief that we were better than everyone. And so it kind of caught everyone off guard, like, hey, you were supposed to say how great the United States was. Anyways. At the end of the story, which doesn't always happen in real life, he's granted a Nobel Peace Prize for the Gulag Archipelago. The Soviet Union falls and he's able to return to now Russia. And not only does he return, but today the book that he wrote trying to topple, do his part to topple this oppressive regime is now required reading for Russian high schoolers. So I just want to point out a couple of things that I love about this story and why it hit me so deeply. So first of all, if you've ever struggled with the idea that you need a reason to live or get up in the morning, or you feel like life is fleeting or meaningless or futile, finding a way to reduce the very suffering that oppresses you is a great place to start. It not only makes the world a better place, but it gives you a focus and a reason to keep going and something to do rather than give up in a universe that doesn't seem to care. So if you've ever felt like you were on a train of suffering that is human existence, a train of evolution that says life at all costs, rather than get off the train, Solzhenitsyn says, I'm going to put my life's energy towards becoming 
the brake system, a brake system that didn't even exist yet. And I would, I'll do it whether I live or I die. Um, and so the second thing I really like is that it elevates the people who inspired Solzhenitsyn, the people who died and their stories weren't written because we don't know who they are, but there were people who died being kind humans and doing good within their power and they're lost to history. We don't know their names, but did they die in vain? No, because someone saw and someone saw in that humanity something that was worth fighting for. And they didn't get to return home with a Nobel Peace Prize, but this story wouldn't exist without them. And maybe Alexander would have given up if he hadn't seen them. So behind every story of freedom and overcoming and love, there's, a, there's someone who inspired or died before they could get there. For every Jean Valjean, there's a bishop, right? And I love how the story comes full circle. So he's oppressed and he's suffering, he's banished, he loses everything. But in the end, he chose, what can I do with my life's energy? I'm going to speak truth to power. And the power crumbles and he's invited back to his country with great honor and he lives there until he dies. And now every high schooler reads his story and he dies with the hope that this particular evil won't surface again because he spoke the truth. That's the hero's journey, right? So lastly, if you're one of these deep thinkers, big hearted people, I have many of these people in my life who get overwhelmed at the evil and suffering in the world. I love what Solzhenitsyn said, and this is where I'm really gonna dig in here. And this is what I wanna challenge you to do. People asked him for the rest of his life, what can we do to combat the evil in this world? Because he saw human evil more than really any of us. And he said two really interesting things. He said, it's easy to think that we can put good people over here and evil people over there. But he learned that the line between good and evil lies within every human heart. So the first thing to do to face the evil is to look at the evil within and really look at it. Have you met the part of you who takes joy in the pain of an enemy? Have you met the part of you who is selfish and envious and indifferent and spiteful? Have you met that person? But even more than that, he said, the simplest and most accessible key to liberation, and this is the piece that really saved my life, and I'm not even kidding. The piece that was really key, what can we do? And he says, the most accessible, accessible key to liberation is to not participate in lies. So he believed that the Soviet Union could not rule without his countrymen, kind of taking part in the lies that propped up the system, the lies that we all tell because we don't want to rock the boat or offend or push up against power or lose friends. So what can you do? You work on the evil in your own heart and you tell the truth, tell the truth. So this is what prophets of old have always done. They always existed in the wilderness, speaking truth to power and pointing us to the evil within, right? So sometimes they were stoned and killed for their messages, but their messages lived on in the hearts of the people who heard them. Sometimes a prophet started a journey of liberation, like the story of Moses, and it ends up 
you know, that story ends with Joshua, or sometimes they live long enough to return, like when Jesus walked back into Jerusalem and they laid palm leaves because they recognized a truth in him uh, so profound that the very ground that he walked on was sacred. But either way, prophets across history, including prophets today, people who are speaking truth to power, uh, are the ones who have always had this outlook of seeing through the bullshit, separating the good and evil, and speaking truth. And in the end, it actually not only makes the world a better place and reduces the very suffering that we participate in, but it gives you a, a reason to live that's greater than your own life. And that can be something that can save your life when you are in a place of a dark night of the soul. So essentially what I did is I heard this story and I felt I was a little bit feeling like life was meaningless or that the suffering was just too great. But I had to admit to myself in that moment that suffering is bad. And if suffering is bad, the right thing to do is to put your life's force into where you can help. And essentially that boils down to where can you tell the truth? What truth do you and only you have to say? And the great benefit of it is this side effect of happiness uh, because you're doing, you're creating the life that only you can live. So I started thinking, what truth do I have to say? Where can I put my life's energy, right? I'm not gonna topple the Soviet Union, but what truth do I have to say to a place in the world that needs to hear it, right? And so I started thinking about it and I said, you know what? The suffering that I know intimately is the suffering caused by bad ideas, particularly the ones from religion. The suffering of my parents who didn't know what to do in a Mormon religion with their gay son, I could say something. The suffering of our earth because we're so sure that Jesus is coming that we're destroying it, I could say something. The suffering of people, this growing group of people who now find themselves on the outside of the safety of religion, without a tribe, without a story, without a moral education, without a community for their children, just numb in need of a deeper way to live, but not knowing how, I could say something. I could help there. The suffering of children in the system who needed the love of, the mo of a mother, I could do something. So I adopted children. Um, and so over time, I dug myself out of this hole of nihilism and complete deconstruction, deconstruction to nothing, when I started to tell the truth. And so now what I see around me is I see the most beautiful people trying to take on something. Maybe it's creating more art in the world or music or love or teaching people helping women to connect to their bodies, or you're moving into a tiny house, or you're making religion better from the inside and being a safe space for people, or you're creating farm to table meals that bring really diverse people to a dinner table, or just a subtle shift of being a doctor who's really present with people versus a doctor who just sees a name on the chart. There are millions of unique ways that people are creating meaning in their lives and in the world. And what it reminds me of is something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, Gospel of Thomas is one of the most mystical books uh, of the Apocrypha. 
And his disciples were asking this really interesting question. They were asking him, what do we do? Should we fast? What diet should we observe? Should we give alms? They're asking him all these questions about basically how do we, you know, do this religion thing better? Like, what do we do? What are the actions that we should do? And instead of Jesus giving them a commandment or a list of things to do, he just says one thing. He says, do not tell lies for nothing hidden will not become manifest and nothing covered will remain uncovered. So when they're asking Jesus, gosh, what do we do? He just says, let's start with telling the truth. So if you've ever found yourself in a dark place, a dark night of the soul where it seems like the sun will not rise, I just offer this gift to you, this, this story that helped me from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which is what truth do I have to say? What corner of the vineyard could I develop a tool for? Because not only will you make the world better, but you'll find that you'll whistle while you work. The freedom is in the gift. And everything good that I have in my life right now is because I took the really, really scary step of telling the truth. Sometimes that truth was, I need help, which is really vulnerable and scary, especially for us post-Mormons, because we like to talk about service, but we never talk about asking for help. That's really hard. Uh, sometimes that truth was being honest in a relationship. I remember when I had to come and tell my husband that I didn't believe certain things anymore. And I, it was, I had so much anxiety in my body. It was truly terrifying. Like I, you know, I, I thought I might lose this relationship, but I can't stay here unless I tell the truth. And so I, I told the truth and now we have this, um, really beautiful, still even mixed faith marriage, but it wouldn't be that way if I hadn't told the truth. And sometimes the truths that I said was changing a career. I was in a theology PhD program. I got as far as my dissertation. And eventually I had to be honest with myself that even though it was really interesting and I was learning a lot, and I could write some things or I could change the analogy of God to something that I could believe in. I eventually had to be honest with myself and my professor, someone who I dearly love and say, um, this isn't for me. This isn't the right place for me. And I had to walk away. And that was hard. And <laughs> I was really vulnerable. Um, but all the good things in my life come from speaking the deepest truths and really not caring about the consequences. Um, my deepest relationships are the people who I can be the most authentic and honest with, but it's scary those first few times that you show up and you just say, this is my story and I don't know what you're gonna think of me, but I'm just gonna share it anyway. And then you'll find that people will resonate with you and you'll start to find really deep friendships. Um, I also found that my own voice in the world, which took me a long time to find as Mormon women, we have a um, habit and this habit lasted for a lot longer than, than I was in Mormonism, but we have a habit to, in order to justify what we say, we have to quote someone else, particularly white men. And this is even in, even in philosophy and even in, in any kind of field where it's where it's male dominated. It took me a long time to just 
say what I wanted to say without having to quote a white man to justify myself, right? Um, or as Brene Brown says, you know, speak truth to power and belong so fully to yourself that you can stand alone in the world, in the wilderness. But I noticed that when I spoke from my own soul without having to quote others, that it resonated with people more. Um, not everyone, right? Not everyone. And you'll find that I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but the people that I do resonate or who resonate with me or have heard a story that really touched them. Um, it's because I spoke from my own heart. It's not because I wrote down a quote from someone else. So this story of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, and the stoned male and female prophets from across time tell us this really beautiful truth that when you've lost everything, when you've deconstructed down to nothing, that's when you truly find your voice. That's when you find the thing that really makes life meaningful for you. That's when you find your core values. And that's where you find the gift to the world that only you can give. And when we lean into that, we can find that life on the other side of nihilism is really focused on what you want to spend your life energy on. It's really intentional because you know that you will die. So for me now, you know, gossip about me or my reputation or the brand name of my car, all of that kind of falls away. Um, as I truly begin to rebuild from the ashes, the life that is calling me. So at the end of your journey, you can find that the greatest treasure of all is to look back on your story and say, I was the hero and not the villain of my own story. You can create the kind of character arc of these great stories that we read or the story of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? And so I leave this story with you and invite you to tell the truth and to really get honest with yourself about where you need to tell the truth. It may be you need to tell the truth to yourself about something. I've had that many times where I need to admit something to myself. When you get quiet enough and you ask your subconscious, you know, what, what truth do I need to hear from myself? Sometimes you can have a really honest conversation with yourself. Sometimes it's you're so stuck and exhausted because you're really living a life that is not authentic to you. And the way that you start to change that is by telling the truth. Maybe it's um, you're trying to find your own voice in the world or what you want to do. And again, that comes from telling the truth. And so I just want to send love to you all, especially the people who are listening, who have big hearts and deep thoughts, who really feel the evils of this world, because we need you most of all. The darkest nights end and the sun does rise. And so I leave this story with you and just invite you to tell the truth in your own life and to create a life that is so you, so uniquely you, that only you could really live it. And that's the other side of nihilism. That's the other side of deconstruction. Um, and it starts with the first step of telling the truth. So I leave that story with you. This is a this is a shorter podcast. This is just about 25 minutes. And uh, next week, Bill and I are really, really excited. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the hero's journey and the seven sacred stories. 
And we're going to be really focusing on writing your life as a sacred story and the elements that are really common in, in, in sacred stories and in writing your own. Um, it's really, really powerful work to, to write your own story. And so we're going to be talking about that and modeling that with you guys next week. So we're really excited. Thanks for those of you who stayed with me on my little ramble here today. And I just send you so much love, especially those who are still kind of feeling that they're in the dark night of the soul. There is a way out and it starts with you telling the truth. Much love from me and we'll see you next week. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.